A number of years ago, I was invited to go fishing with a friend. It seemed like a strange invitation because I didn't know my friend liked fishing. But he'd arranged to get us a boat, and he went through a lot of hassle, and I appreciated the effort. But it was while we were on the boat ramp, putting the boat in the water, that I started to get nervous. You see, my friend said to me that he had something that he wanted to tell me once we got on the lake and out of earshot of any other human. I suddenly felt a bit sick. What was it that he needed to tell me out in the middle of a lake that he couldn't tell me on the shore? Hardly a word was spoken while we motored out to the most desolate spot on this lake. He killed the motor and the mood. Aaron, he said, I stole a television. I just stared at him for a moment until I realized that it was my turn to say something. It was like tag. Um, recently, I asked. No, 10 years ago. And I need to do something about it. He was nervous telling me. I could tell that this was a big deal to him, bigger to him than it was to me in this moment. This was back in the day when televisions were square and they kind of were a big deal, literally. He was stuck in a moment and couldn't move on till he did something about it. And for whatever reason, it had just, it had come back. Now we're all at a different place and we put different weight on things that we've done or haven't done. And the gravity is different for each of us. For my friend, the pull of this moment in his life while distant was relentless. He seemed terrified that what happened behind him would affect what was ahead of him. Yet, it was already stealing his present. And therefore, his future was being held hostage and had been for years. It haunted him and he needed to deal with it. Sometimes what stands between the present and the future is the past. And by dealing with it, you're changed, or at least free enough to consider change. It's funny how that happens. Perhaps some can simply put out of mind the past, but many of us carry a piece of it around with us until we get the courage to be released from it, to realize that we can be more than the things done or not done. Of course, the past is never erased, but its impact can be diminished. There's this sense of risk involved, but so is the risk of not doing anything. It could be a slow poison killing your joy. And sometimes we need to learn that lesson by observing it in someone else's life. In this new series we're beginning today, we're calling it More. We are going to look at the possibilities that lie beyond beyond our expectations, our circumstances, our limitations, our past. And so this morning to begin, let's find ourselves in a 4,000-year-old story that inspires us towards the possibility of more. I want to tell the story of a man named Jacob, as written about in Genesis chapter 32. But we will need some backstory in order to understand the dilemma we're about to witness. Earlier in the book of Genesis, it records that a man named Abram has this vision from God. 
In it, God inspires him that his offspring will be more numerous than the stars in the sky, and that through his children, all the nations of the world will be blessed. What an interesting promise. Now, Abram has trouble um, with this promise only because he is having trouble having offspring. His wife is barren. But through a long story, eventually, he does have a child with his wife, Sarah, when she's 90 years old. And they named this child Isaac. And that alone is another story. But 40 years later, Isaac is having trouble having offspring himself. There seems to be a theme here. He's now married, and eventually he and his wife, Rebecca, conceive a set of twins. And she has a terrible pregnancy, the story tells us, as the babies inside her womb fight. And when they were born, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, and he was red, and his whole body was covered with hair like a cloak, according to the writer of Genesis. Jacob was born second, and when he came out of the womb, he was holding on to his brother's heel. So his name Jacob means he takes by the heel, or cheater, supplanter. And the story in Genesis tells us that Esau grew to be a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling among the tents. Now, dwelling among the tents is a way of saying that he was a mama's boy. Esau hunted for his father, and Jacob sowed and cooked with his mom. Genesis tells us that Isaac favored Esau, and Rebekah favored Jacob. Now, I'm a twin. And, ironically, my twin is red and hairy. Now, I grew up among the tents. I was a mama's boy. To this day, I cook and sew. And my twin eats and rips. There seems to be some obvious tension in this story between these two. This is a literary device in the ancient world. A man had two sons. Setting up a dilemma. We see Jesus in the New Testament do the same thing when he tells the parable of the prodigal son. A man had two sons. This sets up a tension for us. And in this story in Genesis, in no time, the story of their early life, we read that Esau returned from hunting famished one day and exhausted. And Jacob was cooking some stew among the tents. And Esau, starving, asked his brother for some stew. And Jacob saw an opportunity to take advantage of his brother, and he asked for his birthright in exchange for some stew. Esau, the, the, the firstborn son, had this birthright. And he thought in this moment, what good is a birthright? He says, I'm dying of hunger. And so he trades the birthrights of a firstborn son for a bowl of stew. That was the most expensive stew in the history of human civilization. I guess the lesson is always negotiate with someone before the food arrives. So Esau swears an oath and he eats. He gives up all that comes with the birthright, the rights of the firstborn child, transferred by oath and a spoon. Now the story tells us that an undetermined amount of time later when their dad Isaac was old and blind, Isaac called for his, his older son Esau and asked him to hunt and prep a meal so that he can give him his firstborn blessing while Isaac was still alive. Now, Rebecca, his mom, overhears this, and so because she favors Jacob, the tent dweller, she hatches a plan. 
go get me some young goats and I will cook your father's favorite meal and you will give it to him and he will think that you're Esau and you will get his firstborn blessing. Now, Jacob objects. Now, he objects because he's not hairy. He looks nothing like his son. He's like, you know, my dad might be old and blind, but he isn't stupid. Now, Rebecca, his mom says, listen, I will put goat skins on your hands and your neck and you will say that you're Esau and you will get his blessing. So Jacob's nervous for good reason, and he wonders if his dad Isaac would discover the deception. He might curse him and not bless him. But Jacob does as his mother asks. Jacob shows up in his father's tent with a meal. Who is this? His father asks. It's me, Esau. How could you have hunted and and made a stew so quickly? His father asks him. Jacob says, I have God's favor. Listen to his smooth lies living up to his name. Isaac says, come closer, let me touch you. Let me see if you're Esau. I'm sure Jacob was terrified, thinking the gig is up. But the father says, you have my son Jacob's voice, but you have Esau's body. Are you really my son Esau? I am, says the deceiver. Or Jacob, the name means the same. Come and give me a kiss. And as he does, Isaac smells his son Esau on his clothes that Jacob is wearing. In other words, Esau had a special musk, and Isaac is convinced. And so he blesses him. And here's the blessing that Isaac offers his son in Genesis chapter 27, verse 28. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And as soon as Jacob leaves his father, almost immediately, Esau shows up with stew in hand to his father's tent. Sees him smoking his pipe and says, Dad, here's the meal. And of course, Isaac says, Who is this? Esau says, It's me, your son. And Isaac, the story tells us, trembled violently. I bless some idiot dressed in goat hair. The blessing is gone, my son. Esau screamed, bless me too. His father says, I can't. It's gone. Esau leaves and was overheard by his mother speaking to somebody else that he would kill his brother Jacob when his dad eventually dies. What? An incredible story. That was just two chapters. So much happens in this story, and it is riddled with ancient tropes that readers would have picked up on. And amazingly, 4,000 years later, we're picking up on the same ones. As outrageous as the story seems, the story is filled with common humanity. So the mom, trying to protect her, her favorite Jacob, sends him away to what's called the Eastern Peoples, to put Dan Aram, which is her family, her brothers. She tells Isaac, her husband, that she's sending her son Jacob away so he can find a wife. So Jacob flees his brother's wrath and seeks to find a wife in Mesopotamia, the area of his mother's people. And on the way, Jacob sets up a camp, finds a stone for a pillow because he's left in such a hurry, it's all he has, and he falls asleep. And he has this significant dream that Genesis records. A ladder appears from earth to heaven, and angels are climbing up and down. And then suddenly the promise of God, 
the promise that God gave Abram, his great-great-grandfather, and to Isaac, his father, about becoming a great nation of people. And Jacob in this dream discovers his role. He has a role in it all. He discovers some significance. It is a significant moment in his story. It's a glimpse of more, undeserved more, grace. Jacob wakes up with a new conviction and goes to his uncles. And 14 years later, and some more deceiving, he marries a couple of cousins. Jacob and his livestock that he acquires begin to prosper. And another crazy story about speckled and spotted sheep. You may remember it from childhood. And Jacob overhears his brothers-in-law thinking that Jacob's cheating on them because he's prospering so much. Maybe they've discovered what his name means. Or maybe they read the Christmas letter from Esau. So eventually, Jacob makes a deal with his father-in-law to leave, to take all he has and go on his own way. And he sets out back to return home. That's just the backstory. Meant to emphasize the sordid past of Jacob. But on his way home, Jacob decides he wants to reacquaint with his twin. He wants to make right what has been wrong. That dream he had 14 years ago is still haunting him. That his offspring will become a nation that through them, the entire world will be blessed. No pressure at all. But Jacob decides he needs to make amends with his twin, Esau. He sends servants to find where Esau is and to tell him that he, what he's been up to and to ask for favor. Basically, he's asking for a truce. And they return and say, hey, we, we met Esau. You guys look nothing alike. But you need to know he's coming. And he's bringing with him 400 men. And Jacob's distressed. He freaks out. He fears for his life. But he doesn't run. Jacob stays. He prepares to meet Esau. He divides his people and herds into two groups in case Esau attacks one, the other can escape. And he prepares an elaborate gift, a parade of livestock for his brother as an offering. 200 goats, 30 camels, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 30 donkeys, several large screen TVs, a year of Netflix, and a full version of Spotify. He sends his servants with these instructions. When Esau meets you and asks, whose are these? Say they're yours. And that night while the parade is en route, while his brother and 400 men were coming, Jacob wakes his family, sends them across to the other side of the Jabbok River to protect them. And he stays by himself in preparation to face the consequences. Here's how that moment is recorded in Genesis chapter 32 verse 22. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his servants, his 11 sons, and crossed to the, crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the river, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, and that hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. 
But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed them there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God's face. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he, as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. This event happens next, sandwiched between Jacob's past and the possibility of an incredible future. Jacob's life is about deception. An honest reading has one thinking that he is the most undeserving of both the blessing of his father Isaac and the promise of God. Hands down, this Jacob is terrible. But Jacob is more than a name given to him. Jacob is more than a story that has been written for himself, by himself. Jacob stands between adversity and possibility. And in that space is the power to choose. And in that choice lies his growth and freedom, to paraphrase Viktor Frankl. It's an amazing what a mystical moment can do for us. For some, it's near death. For some, it's a close call. For some, it's an obvious truth or the experience of grace. It's the promise that you can be more than, more than your past. I'm inspired by Jacob's desire to reconnect with his brother after two decades of deceit. There is this key in his past that seems to unlock the potential of something in his future. It reminds me of my friend in the boat. That, can, that key can look different for us all. For the first time that I've read in this story, Jacob shows courage, possibly remorse. He is willing to risk all of it for the sake of doing what he feels is the right thing. This peculiar story tells us that in preparation for what ever may come with his brother, Jacob sends his family and stuff across the river. Jacob was left alone, and he wrestled with a man until daybreak. Well, who is this? How can he wrestle with a man if he's all alone? Who is this unnamed wrestler? Flannelgraph Christianity taught us that it was an angel, but the rabbinic traditions in the Midrash suggest that perhaps Jacob wrestled with his conscience. Others suggest that it was actually Esau that he fought. Others still, perhaps, he wrestles with a once-rejected side of himself. Regardless, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. And then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so the man asked him, what is your name? Isn't this an interesting question? Does this assailant really not know his name? Or is Jacob being required to come clean and declare that his name is Jacob, the deceiver? And by stating his name, that he is declaring that he is a cheater. In this moment, he's owning his past. Is it possible that before we can become more than we used to be, we need to at least name what it is we are leaving behind? How else can we know we've left it? That we have become. Maybe this is why many of us struggle with allowing our stories to evolve. We are dragging the past with us. Name it and let it go. Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have wrestled with God and with humans and have overcome. He's given a new name, and with that, a new future. Israel. He went from Jacob, which means deceiver, 
to Israel, which means he struggles with God or God strives. And then Jacob asks his assailant, this wrestler, tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Well, it's a fair question, but why is he asking? Does it matter? If he's changed, what difference does it make? Regardless, he gets no answer. Silence. And then in that silence, he's blessed. So Jacob calls that place Peniel. He names it, saying, It's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Jacob left and limped. Jacob was different. A new name and a price for his transformation. There's always a price for transformation. What a crazy story about when our past catches up to us or we, when we choose to confront it instead of run from it. The way to overcome our own failures and mistakes is to own them. And Jacob up to this point is undeserving of the future, of his future, in my opinion. He steals his brother's birthright. He steals his blessing. This guy's a jerk. He does nothing to deserve to be a patriarch of the Jewish people, their namesake. Are you kidding me? But then he does. And limping, he may write what his past had made wrong. What a crazy story. It's an unbelievable story. Except that it seems more relatable upon investigation. And perhaps there is a piece of us in this story. Does this story capture a struggle that is so human that we all find ourselves in its telling? So we need an outrageous story like this to teach us how to become more, really? Yeah, actually, I think we do. Stories like this catch us off guard. We're so surprised to find ourselves in something so ridiculous, so what feels exaggerated. But like Jacob's dream, they have the power to inspire us towards more. Whether or not you think the story is true, the story is filled with truth. Something significant happens to Jacob after this night of wrestling. Regardless of who it was he was wrestling, it's still Jacob wrestling with God. It's man struggling with God. I can relate to it on so many levels. No matter who I'm struggling with in life, it's still me struggling with God. Asking God, why did you create these idiots? Why must I struggle with this? Why can't I be stronger? Why can't things be easier? Why, can, why do people get away with stuff? Why did you make me this way? The epiphany is when I can look at my opponent and see the face of God. God is using my circumstances to wrestle out of me a new person. Look what happens the next day when Jacob finally confronts Esau, his fraternal enemy. Esau is refusing the gifts and Jacob pleads with him and says in chapter 33, verse 10, No, please, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept these gifts from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Wow. He says, seeing you is seeing the face of God. Rabbi Sachs says that the supreme religious challenge is to see God's image in the one who is not in ours. When you can't just let go, even when it hurts, that's a sure sign. It's something significant. It's a wrestling. To see God's face in those who oppose you and that which opposes you is a sign of transformation. It's like Jacob receives this physical limp, but his spirit is healed of its impairment, the deceiving part. It's an exchange. What would you exchange for a name change? A change of your trajectory. When Jacob goes out to see his brother who rightfully should want to kill him, he's met with love and embraced. 
Why does Esau have a change of heart? Perhaps it is the way he's being treated. Perhaps he's being confronted not by a deceiver anymore, but by one who struggles just like Esau. Perhaps the rising tide of empathy has lifted all boats in this moment. Jacob was set free not by outrunning his name, his past, or his reputation, but by catching up to it, only to leave it behind.